Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 27 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got a great show for you, an interview with Asharna Walsh, the founder and CEO of Coral. With a mission to give people easy and affordable access to a happier, healthier, intimate life, Coral is a sexual wellness app that offers evidence-based guides created by experts. In this episode, Ashana shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from moving to Jakarta to launch a meal delivery startup, to landing a role at Steelhouse in LA, to working as an investor at Embark Ventures, and then leaving to start her own company, Coral. We dive into her experience working in management consulting, how she came up with the name Coral, and what it was like to raise over $3 million by talking to investors about sex. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Asharna. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start from the very beginning. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Coral. Um, Where are you from originally? Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, sure. That's actually a funny, funny thing to say on a first date. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell Um, me about your childhood. (laughs) Tell me everything I need to know. (laughs) So I am half Sri Lankan, half Australian. I was born in Sri Lanka um, and raised in Australia. So um, definitely a melded cultural upbringing um, between, you know, the Australian context having quite a heavy Sri Lankan influence at home. Um, Spent most of my teen formative years in a town called Canberra, which is about three and a half hours drive south of Sydney. Um, Childhood was, you know, pretty happy. Solidly, um, I'd say middle class, um, my parents really emphasized education. Um, what did they really do? lucky to have. Well, they sent me to this thing called Kumon, which is like math camp. <laughs> they so made me read a lot. The family or what? Like, what are your <laughs> nah. parents are like, no, you I need to learn math? I think it's the subcontinental, like, uh, you know, I was told I had to be a doctor or a lawyer or a judge kind of thing. So very much a was sent on a professional track, um, which I paid attention to. I went to university, got a law degree and an economics degree. And then... Wait, real quick, did you have siblings or were you an only child? Yeah. I've got an older brother, which was right. actually, I think, really great. Um, I actually tell people um, when I talk about, like, expectations for men and women that I felt really privileged as a young woman because... 
my family definitely had the same expectations of me and my brother when it came to academic and professional achievement. Um, and the thing that re- really sticks out to me is actually when it comes to relationships and sexuality, that same evenness wasn't there. So as a woman, I had certain expectations that weren't true for my brother. And that was part of what made me realize that um, there was opportunity for Coral. Like what? what? What was that like way back in the day as a kid? What were some of those things? Um, I think it was just mostly around the way um, sex and relationships were emphasized. So, and I think a lot of women grow up with this pressure and it's different depending on your cultural context. But for me, it was very much, you shouldn't have sex until you're married. Um, sex is something that you give a man. Um, it, like my, my virginity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my virginity was something to be protected. Um, and you know, my, my parents were not supportive of romantic relationships between me and other people. But they were of your brother having romantic relationships. Yeah. They were more open to it. Mm. And so yeah. why didn't they want you to have romantic relationships? I think it's just a cultural it's a cultural upbringing, right? I think, um, for many cultures, um, a woman's sexuality is a, something that has to be contained and protected. Mm, Right, right, right. Until you're married. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Surprise situation. So, okay. So you have this older brother and your parents, what did they do for a living? Um, so my mother, um, worked for the government, um, in sort of health policy. She used to be a microbiologist and work in a blood bank in a hospital. Um, my father, um, got a law degree when I was quite young. So relatively late in his life, um, and started his own legal practice and then started just, um, trading stocks actually. So he was at, around a lot because he was self-employed. Um, and my mum was the one who had the more like sort of regular, stable, steady income. Yeah. Yeah. And so were you very entrepreneurial as a kid? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, my parents on the side, um, would, but they bought properties, um, like investment properties and would try and renovate them and sell them or try and get them to a point where they would be generating some sort of cash flow. Um, so I think actually I was surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurial thinking as a child. My parents also started a restaurant when they were in their twenties, um, and did some other sort of business type things throughout my childhood on the side of their regular jobs. Um, So I did actually have this tension in, in the example of, you know, go and get a solid, stable, professional job yet, you know, there are ways to make money and try and do, do things on the side. Um, so I think that was quite formative in my thinking. However, I don't think I really recognized my own entrepreneurial drive until my early twenties. Interesting. So as a kid with your parents and kind of this cultural family thing saying you should be one of four titles, you Mm -hmm. know, what did you want to be as a kid? Did you want to be one of those doctor, lawyer, you know, you want to have, I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a park ranger. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to be out in like the bush, (laughs) clearing trails or whatever. (laughs) And then uh, I wanted to be an architect for some time. Um, and then 
I think my ambition going into university had been maybe like forced down a more pragmatic path, but I really wanted to do work in relation to climate change. And I remember being sort of pushed out of that approach. I think also at that time, my family didn't really believe much in climate change. So that was about 15 years ago now. Yeah. Um, and so a range of things. No, I don't think I ever was like, I 100% want to be a lawyer, which is where I ended up going with my law degree. So you got your law degree from where? Uh, Australian National University. All right. And yeah. so now you have your degree and you're like, I'm just going to go be a lawyer now. No? What, what happened? Well, actually, I, I um, realized early that, so I thought I, I realized early that I wanted to have a career with some sort of social impact. And so initially I thought that could be through the government. So Canberra's the capital of Australia. Uh, I got exposed to a lot of government jobs. So I actually worked for the Prime Minister in economic policy while I was at university and that was a formative experience and it made me realise that I didn't want to work in government. <laughs> and then uh, I got a job in a prestigious law firm um, and they gave me a graduate job offer and I had realised I didn't want to be a lawyer, so I turned that down. <laughs> and your family why. is like, what is wrong with you? Where did we yeah. go wrong? Actually... <laughs> that cycle's happened at least sort of four times and now they've just given up. <laughs> They're like, here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> when you come home and you're like, oh, I'm starting a sex company. They're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've completely lost hope now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So then um, I turned down a sort of prestigious legal job and was like, oh, am I allowed to swear? To swear yeah, to why not? Go for it. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, and that's when I sort of, I had that entrepreneurial ambition of like, how do we combine um, the profit motive with some, some sort of social good? And so I went into management consulting after university just because I had no idea anything to do with business. Um, yeah. Yeah. So sort of, I went into consulting at Boston Consulting Group. All right. So how was that experience? Oh, awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> consulting yeah. was not your thing. <laughs> also, also not my thing. Turned yeah. out. Check. Um, just like process of elimination, you know, you're just actually, like, <laughs> I had to start a, I had to start a, a company because I couldn't keep a job down anywhere else. Um, <laughs> no. So I, I started, um, I think I, I went into that job quite naive. Um, it's a really intense corporate environment and, um, you know, super high standards. I'm really happy I did it. It like taught me a lot, um, strengthened me actually a fair bit. Um, but ultimately, and I think this is probably quite an entrepreneurial trait is like when you're being forced to do a lot of work that doesn't make sense for you and it's having a huge impact on your quality of life, it's like impossible to be happy. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, bef so before and after that kind of consulting experience, what were your, what did you think it was? And then obviously maybe what was it actually in reality? Yeah. Well, it's like? interesting, right? Because, you know, I got offers from McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group in Bain. Wow. And all of those companies like sell this vision, right? And I'm, I think anyone who's, you know, at a top tier school right now or doing an MBA um, would be familiar with these businesses. And yep. And they sell this whole like amazingly interesting work, sort of strategic thinking, work with amazing people. And yeah. 
Um, a lot of that's actually true, but what they don't talk about is also how these companies tend to be used, which is to validate decisions that have already been made um, or to provide justification for an unpopular decision um, and also to justify the expense of a company like McKinsey or BCG coming in and providing these services. They have to sort of... Um, produce this huge amount of volume of work, even if it's not exactly what the company wants. So you're actually doing a lot of meaningless work a lot of the time, especially <laughs> at a low level. Right. Um, and, you know, I came in at, at an entry level, so I was the one doing the sort of lots of meaningless work. Yeah. Um, so I, I just really struggled with that. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. And so meaningless work, I'm sure, but you've also probably took a lot from that. What learnings did you um, gather from that experience that did help you with being a founder? Was there anything? Um, yes, I think. Other than I maybe think grinding it, through things that you don't like, you know, because we do yeah. that a lot as a founder. <laughs> yes. So that, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Sometimes there's just shitty jobs that you have to do yep. and, and then you just have to do them. Yep. <laughs> um, so I definitely took that from it. I think, I think something else I really took from it um, was resilience. Um, I think resilience is one of the most important qualities as a founder um, and I, I think, you know, I'd kind of sailed through a fair bit, um, until that point in the sense of, I did pretty well at school. I did well at uni. I sort of got the jobs that I wanted. And that environment is a very high performance environment where you're surrounded by people smarter than you, more competent than you. And, and actually those companies are built on telling overachievers that they're not doing well enough, um, because you have these really, really talented individuals and then you tell them that they're not doing well enough so they work even harder. It's actually really smart. <laughs> um, and so I think that resilience and like, you know, feeling like shit, like pulling myself up, <laughs> turning up at work the next day and performing still is like a really powerful thing that I took from that experience. Yeah. So when you left consulting and you're like, this is boring, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. What did you end up doing from there? I actually moved to Jakarta in Indonesia. So I'd been in Sydney in Australia um, and I started a, a health food business there. Why did you move there? That sounds kind of um, random, no? What, what yes, made you go there? Super random. Uh, my partner at the time um, got offered a job there and, and I wasn't happy in my job. And I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Adventure. Nice. Mm -hmm. So you went on this adventure to work on a food company. Sounds like mm -hmm. is that what it was. So tell us about mm -hmm. that. Um, look, it was 
again, a really, I'd be really great learning experience. Um, Jakarta is a huge city. Um, it is a fascinating place. Um, the people, I mean, it's like, I'm not sure how many of your listeners would have traveled that extensively. Um, but it's really hot, really humid, full of millions of motorbikes. The traffic is the worst traffic in the world. Like LA was a relief when I got to LA. Oh my God. It's that bad. (laughs) The city floods every year. Um, the infrastructure is just crumbling. There is very little, um, governance and, um, corruption is a real issue there. So it's not an easy place to start a business. Well, it's an easy place to start a business from the perspective of you can just hire people and get them to do things. And there's very little like red tape. Um, but then if you want to set up like legally and the full protected structure, it's very difficult, especially as a foreigner. Mm. So, um, for me, the main learnings from that experience were just again, around how much entrepreneurship is literally about like turning up to your desk and actually doing things without having a lot of clarity on, on how they're going to end up and, and why. Yeah. Um, and how, and I think also how like things can be quite slow. Like it feels like everything's really, really slow, but then when you look back, you're like, Oh, I've actually made a lot of progress. Um, but I also learned from that that starting a business in Indonesia is really hard. So <laughs> decided to leave it about a year in. All right. So how did you, how far did you get within that year? Um, gosh, we got to, we got, we got definitely got to revenue. We like, we started out with events and then we started building sort of a lunchbox delivery menu. Um, and so validated the concept but didn't get particularly far down into like having a full set of operations, if that makes sense. And so what that kind of concept exactly? Um, is essentially really clean meal delivery. So lunch boxes to offices, westernized food, adhering to sort of that. We did mostly raw, mostly alkaline, which are two food philosophies I don't really believe in now, but um <laughs> But essentially, like mostly vegetables and yeah. and really healthy food, which is really really difficult to come by there. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you decided, you know, this is not this food startup is not for you, and you decide to leave. Why did you leave, and where'd you go next? I think um, I had this really really strong gut feeling that it wasn't right, the business. And when I tuned into that feeling, I was like, I can't ignore this. So I made the decision to end it. What do you mean by right? Right for you personally, like it wasn't aligning with your values or it wasn't right for you to be in that city at that time or what, what didn't exactly feel right? I think it was actually that I couldn't see a path to it working, Mm. the business. Yes. And so... Yeah. So we started speaking to investors and we had those first few meetings and I was like, nah, like this, just, <laughs> <laughs> this, this isn't going to sort of, <laughs> yeah. yeah even, <laughs> even though it wasn't necessarily about the access to capital, it was just sort of playing out the next few phases of the business in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
Yeah. So there was this really strong, like, this doesn't make sense. And then when I, when I acknowledged that feeling of this doesn't make sense, yeah. then it was almost like I looked at everything around me and was like, oh, okay, this, like all of these other things also need to change. And so that's actually when I made the decision to come to the US was because I was fascinated by tech and what, what was going on with the way it was changing our world. So this is sort of 2013, 14. So like Uber was just getting traction. Um, Instagram was starting to take over the world. E-commerce was becoming much more of a thing. Yep. Um, so I was seeing all of these really profound shifts occurring and realized that that was sort of where I wanted to be in terms of my career. And so you came straight to LA? Yes, by accident. Not by accident? Purpose. What do you mean? <laughs> Where were you supposed well, to be? Yeah, I, or New York? I don't I actually I came to the US. So the thing is for foreigners to move, it's actually quite difficult because I needed to get a sponsored work visa. I was like, fun. okay, yeah. is this actually gonna happen? Don't know. Yeah. So I came to the US. I had one friend who was the buyer for a retail department store in Texas. And so I went to Houston and I, I slept on a couch and I gave myself three months to find a job. And I was like, if you get a job in three months, then that's, that's that. A job in Texas or you're like anywhere? In, in the US. All right. All right. Broad <laughs> scope. Yep. Broad scope. <laughs> and my criteria was a tech company of less than a hundred people. All right. Because I knew I wanted to work in tech and I knew I wanted to work um, in a small organization. And so, um, yeah, just started cold calling companies because I didn't have any professional network, um, yeah. and tried to get a job and, um, ended up meeting the CEO of a company called Steelhouse based in LA mm -hmm. and, um, convinced him I was smart and he gave me a job. All right. So you cold called him or like, how did that tell me about that story of how you got that job? Yeah. So, um, I, started doing some freelance consulting work for an Australian startup, um, helping them out with their business model and operations and things like that. And they were exhibiting at South by Southwest. So, nice. um, when, so they were like, well, we know you're in the U S do you want to come help us out at South by as well? So I met Mark at South by, um, nice. everyone I met, I asked for a job. I actually met him at a venture capital funds party that I got an invite to because one of the guys I was with was friends with this Aussie guy who worked there. So it was a very <laughs> tenuous yeah. connection. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So you get this job offer, you move to LA. Um, how was your experience at Steelhouse? What are some of the things that you learned there? Um, I learned what a fast scaling chaotic tech company actually looks like from the inside. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, when I joined, it was 70 people. By the time I left, um, it was 250 and that was wow. in a year and a half. Um, 200, sorry. I can't remember if it's 200 or 150. I think it was 250. Um, yeah. And, and I was essentially like a chief of staff to the CEO. So I sat on the executive team I was the director of business operations. Um, we made some pretty major changes when I was there and I was project managing 
those changes. Cool. Um, and so I got this very unique perspective sort of at the board level, despite being relatively early in my career, um, of like what a scaling company actually looks like. And also, um, I hadn't had any exposure to how technology is actually made. So my role, because it was business operations, allowed me to interface with engineers and product and product marketing and sales. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot about tech. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And so did that inspire you to want to do something in tech then after being kind of having that insider view? Yeah, I think I already did want to do something in tech before I, I moved there. So part of the ideation process for the company in Jakarta was recognizing how technology and the internet was enabling businesses in ways that they hadn't been before. So my vision for the company in Jakarta was very much around online ordering and digitally enabled fulfillment of ordering and things like that. And so that's why I wanted to work in a tech company was, was because of that eventual ambition, but I just knew that I didn't know anything about it. So I saw Steelhouse as a way to learn more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, it helped me orient my ambition a bit more clearly. Did you make any mistakes during that first job at Steelhouse that you're like, oh, that was a learning one. That was a learning experience. <laughs> that was a little painful, but lesson learned. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, I think the biggest that I could pull out was just not understanding the difference between uh, hard and soft power and um, also understanding the different ways in which you can get a job done. Okay. So you have to explain that. What do you mean by hard and soft power? I've not heard that before. So I'm really <laughs> curious to hear what you mean by that. Yeah. So, um, what I think about hard power, I think about like clear authority. And when I think about soft power, I think about influence essentially. And, you know, if, if I have a stated goal that I'm trying to achieve, depending on my role in relation to what I need to get done or who I need to work with in order to get that thing done, I will either have hard power, like clear authority or soft power, like influence. And I think um, this was one of my first roles where I was having to interface across like a very large and diverse range of stakeholders and convince them to do things. And some of which I had sort of hard power over and some of which I only had soft power and sort of how to understand the nuances of, of each of those and, um, and wield them appropriately. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I feel like that was in a book somewhere with the, um, more about like gaining influence from, um, kind of repeating what it is that you want a few times. And over time, it starts to become what they think is their idea. You know, like there's a few, I guess, little tactics to what you're referring to as um, influence, I think. Um, yeah, and I probably haven't read that book, which is also maybe why I struggled. I don't even remember what the name of the book is, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but I think I've heard something similar to what you're trying to explain. Um, mm. So that's interesting. So you kind of learned, I guess, how to harness both sides, bo both different types of powers. Yeah, well, I'd say that's where I made the biggest mistakes. Um, and so it's something I've definitely become more conscious of. You mean, well, what mistake did you make? Um, I think, I, I think I didn't recognize I didn't recognize the delineation, the explicit delineation I had with different people in, in relation to, to different versions of that and then how to best use my soft or, or hard power with, in different situations to achieve my stated goal. Yeah. So like, See, <laughs> I feel like I am like the one-way train on the hard power side and I really <laughs> struggle with the soft power, which is probably why I'm totally unemployable. So do you think that's why you're an entrepreneur or do you think that that was actually, you know, a lesson to be learned? Um, I've asked myself that cause it's funny that you just referred to yourself as unemployable. Um, cause I've, I've thought that about myself. <laughs> oh wait. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. Maybe people with traits like us do struggle with, with that more than others. Um, potentially. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I feel don't... like it's like this thing where you're just like, you should just do what I say, because that's what I know is what you, we should do. I'm not going to try to sit here and try to get influence and just like, you know, <laughs> go around the bush here on what we think, you know, I'm like straight to the point. Right. So I really fail a lot with this like soft influence power thing that you're talking about, yeah. but in corporate structure, that's exactly how it works. And it requires someone who's extremely patient and able to maneuver, you know, in certain ways to get people on their side. I'm like, I don't have patience. So I feel like, yeah. I don't know if that's an entrepreneur trait, personality trait. I think it might be. Yeah. All of those things. All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah, probably actually. It's always something that I think I've struggled with. Um, and when I was sort of project managing like organizational wide changes across like 25 the, the 25 only stakeholders in the organization because literally everyone who was middle, every executive and every person who was kind of middle management was involved in what I was doing. Mm. It's like quite a lot of soft power. <laughs> and, and that's so hard, I think, for founders because as a founder, you really can't care what most people think. And especially, mm -hmm. you know, you it's like your job to be a visionary and, you know, you believe in something, you do everything you can to ha make it happen and you're relentless about it. That is very different than someone who tries to have that type of like softer, maybe like influence you know, thing, I think yes. different people. You know? Yes. Yeah. And well, also, um, and I don't know how much you like want to go into gender related stuff, but I do think it's like more frowned upon for women to demonstrate those yeah. qualities. So maybe if I had been yeah. in my role and been a man, it would have been exactly. more tolerated if I was like more, right. more that way. Yeah. Right. Like straight to the point. Why are we not doing this? What is going on here? Right. You know, poking where they don't want to be poked. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's much more expected maybe from the male gender than it is the female. And then when it happens from the female gender, it's like, whoa, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You're Something an employee. Bossy. You're an employee. Yeah. Okay. You know, right. <laughs> I take ownership over this. Yeah. <laughs> 
So moving on from there, so you um, had some lessons learned or maybe not from Steelhouse. And then after that, what happened? Where'd you go? You were like, hmm, this, I don't know about this. Did you dive into entrepreneurship after that? I actually, so I, so I knew the whole time I wanted to start a business, but at that point I didn't know what I wanted to start. And so I actually, and this is a surprising twist, got a job as a venture capitalist. So I, um, I was actually dating someone who was like, oh, I think you'd be a great VC. And I was like, oh, I don't really know much about what that is, but I'll like <laughs> have a look. Yeah. And so I started looking into venture capital and I was very naive, actually. I had no idea, um, you know, that 40% of venture capitalists went to Harvard and Stanford and that, you know, 95, 90% of them are men. Um, so I sort of naively just was like, oh yeah, I could do that. I'd be great at that. I'm going to give it a go and sort of, um, push my, my, at that point, relatively limited network to see if I could get any interviews. And as part of that process, I mentioned my ambition to someone I had cultivated as a mentor who was a venture capitalist. Um, and at that point had no real indications that he was going to start his own fund. Um, but then a couple of months later was like, actually I'm doing this and I'd love for you to be our senior associate. Nice. So yeah. So I went into venture capital and then had the idea for Coral not, not super long after that. So I was, I was in BC for maybe a year and a bit. And then, and then. What's the name of the fund that you worked with? Embark Ventures. Isn't Peter Lee run that? Yeah, yeah. Peter oh, Lee. Like, I think we may have met like actually a long time ago, maybe through him. He is awesome. He is. Peter Lee is very cool. Um, yeah. That's funny because I remember when he first started his fund and yes, I remember it being called Embark. And then I remember it's like, oh my God, finally, a, a female, you know, VC in the LA community. Woohoo. You know, like, that was me. Of those. That was you. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's cool. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So then you were there for a year and then you had, how did you come up with the idea for your company? What made you switch from VC to founder world? Yeah. So I went into VC again, knowing that I eventually I had this aspiration to entrepreneurship. Um, and then it's interesting because for Coral, the personal journey that sort of led to the catalyst was going on, you know, the whole time we've been the narrative that I've been giving you. So it started probably the personal journey started when I was in Jakarta where essentially, um, you know, I was in this relationship, the sex just wasn't as great anymore. We had no idea how to talk about it. We had no idea what was normal. Um, and you know, it's the, it's the place that most people hit a few years into a relationship where you're like, okay, this just isn't as effortless anymore. Um, but that wasn't normalized. And so I, sort of went on my own journey in relation to sexuality and intimacy. I read books, I did courses, I did like cancer courses and different sort of courses with intimacy coaches and um, also um, started speaking way more openly about it. And it was just a really casual, like multi-year process, like, you know, four or five years of just, you know, every few books I read, read would be about sex and stuff like that. And through that process, slowly over time, I realized firstly, like, yes, there is so much that you can do to improve the quality of your sex life, 
But secondly, and I think much more importantly, that there was a huge amount of suffering in relation to this. So like when you look at the statistics, it's nuts. Like 50-something percent of women and 40-something percent of men experienced sexual difficulty lasting three or more months in the last 12 months. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so right. I was not alone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was... Um, thinking about ideas as I do all the time. Um, and I was thinking about what impacts our health and happiness on a daily basis. And I was like, okay, so sleep, nutrition, exercise. Um, I put like meditation or, or purpose, um, relationships and sex. And I actually was drawing them out on a piece of paper. I remember this moment so clearly. And I looked at that final bucket and it was like, it's like that classic light bulb moment. Like, yeah. it was like, ding. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what I'm meant to be doing. Wow. Um, and so that's, yeah, that was the idea for Coral. And, and once I had that idea, it was like, I couldn't unsee it. It was like, I have to do this. And so, so what was it I did. in that moment though, when you're like that aha moment you're talking about, what was it that made you want to just, what made that whole thing highlight for you? Do you know what I mean? Is it because like food, sleep and exercise have already been tackled and there's nothing going on in the sex world to really help people or like, what was it that called to you? in that moment yeah so I have so I've had two two key sort of overarching passions and themes right so one has been around like how do you um like how can I create a business that does something good for the environment or how can I do something how can I create a business that does something good for the way people feel and um, one of the things that's always fascinated me from, you know, a young age is all of these invisible rules that tend to govern the way we are in society and in the world and that often have sometimes negative consequences for us. And so I think when I saw that piece of paper with sex and relationships really clearly outlined, it was like, a lot of different threads came together for me about like, this is something I have experienced myself that I know how, like how I can help people with different, different mechanisms. So we've got these three key pillars to our product, which we can get into later. But, um, and I, and I understood like, oh, I can create a product here that has a huge impact um, because yes, a lot of those other pillars have been attacked, but it wasn't, it was the business opportunity. I saw the business opportunity. It's like literally the biggest market in the world and it's this huge problem and people are willing to pay a lot of money to have better sex. It's like the most obvious value proposition ever. Like, <laughs> Hey, you want to have better sex? Yes. <laughs> um, but it was also the thread into like my personal journey and my ambitions and the things I really get worked up about. So it was this coming together of all of those in a way that I had never had in relation to any other idea. So I have ideas all the time. Yeah. But this one, I was like, oh, right. This one I actually have to do this time. This is what yeah. I have to stick to. This one's it. I can't not do it. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. I can't not do it.
That is really the key. I think that so many founders, aspiring entrepreneurs, they're like, wow, I just need an idea. I've got all these ideas. I just don't know where to get started. And it's like, just haven't found the idea then because Mm -hmm. the idea that you actually have to do or you can't not do is the one that'll end up, you know, surviving because you're most interested in it anyways, or. Yeah. Yeah. I like if I, I think if you don't have that feeling, it'll be very difficult to sustain yourself at the level of intensity and energy you need to get a business out into the world. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. So you have this aha moment. You're like sex world. Here I come. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Unintended. (laughs) Then what happened? How'd you get started? Um, I don't know. I guess I just decided, Hey, I think it's like, you know, I was like, okay, I know I want to create this thing. And I had the key concept for Coral from the beginning, which was this idea of like learn, play and talk. So, you know, the minute I started, I was like, oh, this is it. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, what, what should the elements of this product be? And then I was like, I know it should have these three key pillars. And so really the idea behind that is learning is so integral because we all have a, our base level of knowledge and understanding about sex and intimacy is so low because it's such a taboo subject. Yeah. So there's just so much basic understanding of how our bodies and minds work in relation to sex, which is lacking. And so um, if I could provide our users with that base level of knowledge, then they will understand and be kinder to themselves and their partners. That was the first. The second was talk. And so that was all about speaking to other people, normalizes your experience. It validates your experience. It makes you realize you're not alone. And again, because of the taboo, if you can create, if I could create a safe online space for our users to actually connect in an open and vulnerable way about sex, so not the way that sex is usually communicated about online, right. <laughs> that could be very powerful. <laughs> and then the third pillar is play. And so that's all about embodiment and really pulling in an experiential difference into your usual conception of sexuality or sexual experiences such that you actually feel something different. And so that's through guided exercises. Yeah. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do at the beginning. And so then it was just about, okay, well, how do I validate that hypothesis? And I did that through creating essentially a beta product um, and putting that into people's hands. And so what metric of success did you find was the validation that you needed to say, okay, this is actually something I got to keep doing this. This is, this is working. That's such a good question because I've just had such strong conviction the whole way through. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is going to (laughs) work. Some people are like, if I don't make X amount of dollars in six months, I'm done. You know, I mean, maybe (laughs) (laughs) curious for your thoughts there. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the Um, business. (laughs) No, I I definitely have had, um, it's not like I'm like blind faith, like against, I mean, I've had to raise money, right? So it's not like I can just be like, this is going to work and it's working. Um, But 
I'd say um, the main thing, we did a bunch of sort of user surveying um, and we asked, I don't know if you read this, the founder of Superhuman did this article about like leading indicators of product market fit. Yes. The YouTube video. Did you see the video? I haven't seen the video. No. Oh, okay. He wrote, a, he wrote an article just about like, um, how, how would you feel if this was taken away from you? And it was like mm-hmm. very disappointed, somewhat disappointed. And so our numbers were, were pretty much there very early so on. your audience the majority of your users would be very very disappointed basically if they didn't have the app right and that was with our prototype um wow. and that was with users that we acquired um via social media actually so they weren't like groomed to give us good numbers <laughs> um, <laughs> they were real people <laughs> in yeah. real places that i didn't know um so that was that was um that was one I think really powerful early indicator for us and then I think also um so you know I raised a small pre-seed round of funding relatively early so I had a little bit of money to spend on marketing and just the cost at which we were able to acquire subscribe users and then also um the number of people who clicked subscribe on like a dummy subscription screen was, was high. Um, and so that also gave us confidence in, in raising the next round. Nice. Before we get into fundraising, cause I'm actually really excited to hear how that went. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how you got the name Coral. What, what made you land on that? Yeah. So naming is so hard. Yeah. Um, I don't know how anyone names anything. It's also funny because when you like, well, at least I, when I interface with the company, I don't actually spend that much time thinking about their name. And then when you're on the other side of it, you're like, oh my God, the amount of energy and time that goes into naming a company. Um, but again, that was something that was quite intuitive to me. I had the idea for it because I love diving and I kind of thought about sexuality, like diving in the sense of, um, there's this whole world that exists under the surface um, and it's always there. And it's the same as coral. It's the same as sex. Um, It's always there. It's always under the surface and you can choose to consciously go and take a look at it. And so that's where the name came from. Interesting. That's really cool. Very cool. Um, so let's talk about fundraising. How did you secure your first, um, were you a part of an accelerator or did you get funding from, you know, uh, friends and fools or whatever they call it, you know, friends and family? Um, how'd that go? I actually, yeah. So, um, the majority of that pre-seed round came from a fund in LA, um, who I actually got to know because, um, I asked them for a part-time job. So, so, you know, I decided I wanted to start a business, um, but I, I needed to stay in the country. So again, being a foreigner makes things a lot harder. So I couldn't earn money other than through my visa and I needed a visa to stay in the country. So, you know, if I'd been doing this in Australia, I probably would have just gotten a job in a bar actually and like done that at night, worked during the day and sort of gotten myself through because I'm not from a wealthy background and I, you know needed to pay my way yeah um but in the u.s had the added complication of the visa so i don't know 
what I was thinking. This is like a common thread in my life. But um, I was like, you know what? Maybe I can sell someone the idea of a part-time venture job. Yeah. Which, of course, is insane. Like, everyone was But like, you already no, had you experience, though. I mean, any <laughs> yeah. other outsider here is listening, saying, what are you talking about? You already were a VC. Why is it so hard to get a part-time job for being a... Because it's so hard to get a full-time job. So then they're like, <laughs> everyone's like you're crazy. Like, why would I give you a part-time job when I've got like 75 people lined up immediately who will probably do the same job, do a full-time job for the same amount or whatever. Yeah. Um, I just think there's so many people who want associate positions at funds Mm -hmm. that like partners just get to pick what they want. There's not like, you know, I thought it would make sense at the time. I was like, surely there's someone who doesn't want to pay a full associate salary who would like someone with my skill set you know, a few days a week. Right. It turns out, especially, well, I was in LA, so the community's not huge. So the answer was no. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was like, you're crazy. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, but actually one of the funds that I asked after being like, you're crazy was like, what what do you want a part-time job for? And I was like, well, there's this company I really want to start and I'm really excited about it. And then over a series of meetings um, of me pitching them and, and sort of explaining what I wanted to do and then meeting the rest of the team and all that sort of stuff, they wrote me a, a pre-seed check. Oh, nice. So you didn't have to work part-time. You actually just got funding for your your startup. Yep. <laughs> That's way better. That is a way yes. better deal. So what fund was that that was your first investor? Alpha Edison. What is it? Alpha Edison. Alpha Edison. I don't think I've even heard of that phone. Are they in LA? They are. Yes. Um, And then, but they actually made that check contingent on me getting other investors. So then I had to spend about two months um, Mm. convincing other people to give me money. There you go. There's the, yes. <laughs> so how did that go? So you now have to have conversations with investors that are mostly male about your sex app. So how did that go? That, that didn't, didn't, didn't really exist yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, uh, you know, the first time I pitched Coral to actually to the partners at Alpha Edison, I was like, I, I remember standing in the mirror and, and, and at home and just going, am I actually about to go and do this? <laughs> right. This is going to open up a whole can of worms now. My life is now about sex as soon as I take this money. <laughs> you know, I didn't actually, I didn't actually think about that until about a year in, which <laughs> I consider one of my superpowers is not really thinking through what other people think. Um, it is a superpower because <laughs> if we knew what we were getting into, it wouldn't, we probably wouldn't do it. So yes. Yes. So I actually didn't think that bit through. I just meant more like, going into a room with like, you know, a 40, 50 something year old white man and being like, you know what I think the world needs? (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about sex. (laughs) Yeah. And it's been a consistent, I mean, it's been a consistent difficulty with this business. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's just, I'm really matter of fact about it and comfortable. And it's interesting because sometimes pitches can go usually like one of three ways, um, either an investor is like, they've gone on some sort of sexual journey themselves. or they're like really open-minded and sex positive And they're just like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Like blah, blah, blah. I get it. I understand this. My friends are going through this thing. I'm going through this thing. And I get like 
all their personal yeah. stories. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> oh my God. You know more about the sex lives of VCs. I, I can't even. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> You're going to write um, like an anonymous book one day. <laughs> right. Um, the second group um, might not be as like open emotionally, I guess, to the idea, but they see the business potential and they're also not like scared away by it. Um, so they're kind of like, oh yeah, right. I get it. I can see the parallel to like a headspace or whatever. And then they also um, see the potential, they also see the market potential, right? And the first group obviously see that too. Um, but they like they can wrap their heads around it and sort of have the, that conversation, um, and they tend to to skew it towards the business than the like actual details of like what do we cover, <laughs> how does it actually help me, <laughs> um, yeah. and then the third group really struggle, um, whether it be like oh my god I've got this young woman sitting in front of me talking about like erectile dysfunction and having more orgasms, or or just like they're having their own sort of reaction to what I'm saying which might be oh my god like I am struggling with sex with my wife or something like that and then Mm. and then it's like really difficult to have a proper business pitch right oh my gosh have you ever had a meeting where like it wasn't professional enough because of the topic or were they able to keep it professional I hope no, because most, I mean, most investors would take the meeting after they see a deck, right? Like they're, you're not going to the meeting cold. So they at least through the introduction know what it was about. I actually feel like the sexual harassment angle was way worse as a VC than, than I have found as an entrepreneur, probably also because I'm speaking about a topic that is like sex. So it's much harder to be sort of sexual when we're already there do you know what I mean like because we're already talking about it and they know that like this is part of what I do so I think it's just they're so off guard that 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 kind of can't enter the equation really right interesting so you've raised a total of over three million dollars so far mm-hmm. um what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who are in the fundraising process? Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> Loaded question. Uh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you can get through this. Yeah. It's a numbers game. <laughs> oh, it's a really tough one though. Right. Cause there's like, there's market signals. So it's like, okay. Um, it's a numbers game right but also like how many is enough like how many no's is enough no's for you to go back and recalibrate on your pitch your business like whether you're you're hitting the right milestones things like that yeah um so I think it's really difficult to give someone advice without knowing specifics but I would say no founder that I know of likes fundraising and even the ones who from the outside like crushed it um were like fetal positioning on their hotel room floor, like <laughs> right. trying to get through. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, if I'm speaking to say female founders or founders raising like for a taboo company, um, yeah. my advice would probably be slightly different. So for female founders, I would say, you know, I went into our seed round feeling really confident 
and really clear on, you know, value proposition, what we were doing, why. And I came out of our seed round being like, I fucking hate VCs and like all of the things that people say about, um, about like bias are true and it's so hard. And to be clear, I love, I love our investors now. So I don't actually hate all VCs. I also have lots of VCs. You're like, I only love the ones who have wrote me a check, but everybody else. (laughs) Go F yourself. Else sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I think I think uh yeah, sorry. I don't actually mean I hate all VCs, but I just mean like just it's a really demoralizing and a rough process. And I did feel like I struggled as a woman. And so I think you know, my advice for that would be like please reach out to founders like Lee and I if you are yeah. in the thick of it as a female founder and you need just an ear to help you calibrate what is what is nose versus versus like just plugging through and and playing the numbers game um and then for those raising money in a taboo subject i would say even more it's a numbers game because there is just going to be a huge percentage of investors who don't get it or don't want to get it um so it's going to be inherently more difficult to raise money Um, but that's part of what our competitive edge is. So, yeah. What was one of the most, um, challenging moments during the fundraising process? It's interesting because I always knew that we would raise again, like when I, when I've had this firm conviction the whole way through, like I, I really have had a firm conviction the whole way through and I still really have that firm conviction, um, in our eventual success. Um, and I have to say though, during, I mean, I got a lot of notes during our seed round and to continually bring energy to a pitch, which is so draining every time, um, day after day in the face of many no's is really hard. Like I remember I once, I, I canceled a surf on a Saturday, um, with friends to meet a VC in a Starbucks in San Francisco and And he just, he just like basically drilled me on metrics. (laughs) And I was like, I've built this product with two people. It's in test flight. We're in a beta. Yeah. And you're asking me like why my metrics don't look like headspace. And I'm just like, I don't even know what to say to you right now. Like, Mm -hmm. why did you take this meeting? Right. And so I think there's, and I, I left that meeting and I just cried. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know yeah. how, like, it's like speaking different languages. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, You're like, what's so, LTV? What's CAC CAC? What is, you know, all the abbreviations. It really is like learning a whole new language with the whole metric system of. <laughs> building. Yeah. And I was also like, this is a seed round, mate. Like get out of my grill. <laughs> like, right. You knew what this product was before you took this meeting. Why are we here? Right. It's like, are you a series A investor or a seed investor? I'm just curious. Yeah. Like you're buying shares in this company at a low valuation because it's a seed round. Like that's that's how seed rounds work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, I think it's just like the, the, the maintenance of energy in the face of continual rejection can be really difficult. Um, when did you, when you were going through that process, did you, you know, especially after that experience, you know, you go home and cry and you're like, oh, I wish I would have said this. I wish I would have done that. You know, you just like look back and just wish you would have, you know, done so many things to put that person in, you know, their place or at least give them a different perspective. Um, moving forward, did you have any moments or other meetings where you were able to maybe voice those things or, or at least see how the meetings were being steered in a different direction and, and get out a little earlier? Yeah, I think this is so, so there's two parts, right? Like one is trying to convince someone of your, of like your merit or there's just recognizing that they're not your investor. Right. Um, and there's a gray area in the middle. So I think part of the skill in a pitch is recognizing that moment where you're like, okay, um, I can maybe convince this person. So I'm going to put the like energy and, and sort of skill into trying to show them why their perspective, um, or not necessarily why the perspective is wrong, but like show them why, even if X metric, you don't have it because you're in a beta, <laughs> um, isn't that valuable because of all these other things. Um, right. but then there's just going to be a percentage of people that they're just not your investor. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong or that you're wrong. It just means that it's not a match. It's like dating. Yep. So have you ever had the opportunity to say, Hey, listen, I don't think this is a good fit. You know, I don't know if I ever did that in my seed, but I definitely will in my series A. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you learn a lot from the seed and then you're like, no, I'm just not going to deal yeah. with that crap again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if I'll ever be strong enough to like mid-meeting be like, I don't think this is going to work, but um, it's weird because it kind of is like dating. Like, you don't mid-date be like, look, I don't know. I just don't, I'm not feeling this. Sorry. <laughs> it's kind of like you leave and pretend that things are nice and then sort of write a short. Yeah. I'll call no you later. You note after. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which is actually what most VCs do. It's, it's like, they just ghost. <laughs> right. So being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence. What is your why? What really keeps you going every day? Um, it's that we're genuinely helping people. I think if, um, I, I, for me, it's just so much, um, yeah, we get like, if you even just look at the app store reviews, like people being like, this saved my relationship, this came into my life, the perfect time, like, so grateful. I understand myself so much better now. Um, this is like, we're really touching people on quite a deep level and providing a space for them that um, feels good for them. And so that is hugely motivating. Um, I think also being responsible for other people's jobs now is like pretty, like if I don't, it's, I don't really have the luxury of not feeling like it anymore. Right. Um, which is, I guess, part of the cross that you bear as a CEO. How big um, is your team now? Uh, about 10 full time and then another full part time. All right. And so you have over 300,000 users on your app and you, mm -hmm. you were talking about COVID. So how has COVID affected business? 
Um, COVID's been good for business, actually, which is a horrible thing to say. But um, I think what we're seeing in our users is that sex and intimacy um, has taken a hit. So it's really difficult to feel sexy during a pandemic, um, particularly when you're with your partner 24-7 or not at all, depending on where you're at. Um, when your kids might be at home 24-7, when you might have financial stress, when the world and the po politics of the world are very stressful. Um, so it's not a sexy time, yet people are craving connection and intimacy so much more. So we're actually seeing people perceive intimacy as more important. So that's why I think we've seen the growth that we've seen during COVID. So what is the importance of intimacy? Ah, oh, it's so important. <laughs> I feel like uh, there's a lot of men out there that might disagree. <laughs> well, not, to be gender, <laughs> not to generalize on gender, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, it's not... Well, that's the, that's the stereotype, isn't it? But we, have, yeah. we definitely have a significant cohort of male users. And I think um, part of the, what we're trying to combat is that... Um, you know, it's it's just as and in actually in some ways more important for men because men um, struggle to ask for intimacy in other ways. Um, and so sex is often one of the only ways they can feel physically, sorry, they can feel emotionally intimate because, because it's through that physical intimacy. Um, but, you know, if we just want to take the physiological aspects of sex, um, it is incredibly stress relieving it releases a lot of hormones that are good for our immune system for our psychology um and then on the emotional and psychological side um essentially uh, sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction are bi-directionally and and very much linked um and both of those have a huge impact on your perception of your quality of life so um sex is actually integral for our health and happiness. Um, it's just not something we're encouraged to think of as so. Yeah. And that actually goes for self-pleasure as well. That's interesting. So happy life, happy sex life. So I mean, you're so right. I mean, no one talks about this. No one knows that, you know, it's such a taboo thing. What are some of the things that, you know, you think a lot of people maybe struggle with in the, in the world of sex? So the main three issues that we talk about and we sort of um, attempt to address are um, bedroom boredom, so like just not feeling inspired and motivated in your sex life, um, low desire. Uh, so a lot of people don't want sex as much as they want to want sex. And then the third is around communication, so like really helping you with a, t with a lexicon to navigate whatever issues that you're experiencing. Interesting. Low desire. I mean, because with partners, partnerships, you know, one person might want to have or have a greater or lower desire than the other partner and finding that balance can be really challenging for couples. Yes. Desire discrepancy um, is, is something that literally everyone who's in a relationship deals with. So the idea that you've got two people um, who want sex the same amount at the same time is actually kind of crazy. Like that's like saying like your hunger should be in sync and you should always want to eat the same food at the same time. Right. And so just normalizing that that is a thing 
that is totally fine and happens. And then, and then navigating that, um, negotiation. So like what feels good, uh, when is good, um, you know, someone might compromise and have sex more often than they'd like. Someone might compromise and have sex less often than they'd like. Um, but it's about that dialogue and opening it and, and understanding ways in which you can work with your desire to, to create whatever's best for you in your relationship. And so how does the app work to help couples or individuals, um, you know, with these main issues? So it comes back to those three key pillars. So um, we provide science-based, expert-vetted um, knowledge, learning. Um, we then provide stories of people sharing their experiences and discussion forums around those topics. So um, when you come in, you select goals, essentially, or focus areas. So those focus areas might be um, stoke my desire or um, feel more pleasure. And then we create a syllabus for you based on what we know about you. So we'll know your gender, your sexual orientation, your age, your relationship status. And we actually curate a journey for you based on that focus area um, that comprises those three key threads for the learn, talk and play. And then um, it's up to you to explore from there. Awesome. Yeah. So going back to business, um, what kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make up a strong entrepreneur? You mentioned resilience. Mm -hmm. um, what are some other things that you think make up a good founder? Confidence. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important one. Um, the path of entrepreneurship is backing yourself. Um, and it's super important to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say compassion, but I think, I mean, compassion and kindness are, are similar. I think um, when you're managing people and managing a really stressful environment where you're trying to achieve a lot in a short period of time, um, the ability to sort of roll with the punches and not take that out on your team and the understanding of them and their lives is, is quite important. People will make mistakes. People do have lives, things come up and you need to be understanding of that despite what you've got going on. And I think if you've got that kindness and compassion, it helps to create a much more positive culture for your team. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and then I think another one which doesn't get talked about enough is, um, healthy boundaries. So, um, essentially an entrepreneur's ability to understand themselves and understand what they need to recharge and perform to the best of their ability is super important. Um, yeah. and it's a quality that doesn't get talked about much at all. I agree completely. I'd love to learn what are things that you do to have, or how do you create boundaries? Because um, yeah. I think one of the biggest boundaries that is often crossed with founders and their companies is they kind of, um, their self-worth gets wrapped mm -hmm. up in the company. And then there's right. no real difference between the company and the founder. And right. what affects the company then affects the founder in a really big way. And it's really hard to separate those two. Right. Yeah, I mean, that gets super deep, right? Because that's like, that gets to like ego identity. Um, yeah. 
I personally have been cultivating meditation practice for about six years now. So I went to a 10-day Vipassana course, um, yeah, I guess about six years ago. And then I go back every year for um, a four-day silent meditation. What's the um, course called? Vipassana. Hmm. Um, it's a technique. Vipassana is actually a technique, but there's a guy called Goenka who did a, um, essentially created this school that is, um, it's amazing. It's like as you, the centers are all run, they're all over the world. They're run by volunteers and you just pay a donation to attend. So there's no like, um, if you can't afford it, you can still go basically. Um, and I found it a really profound experience my first 10 day. And then, um, going back each year is a really good reset for me. But part of that is like, really drilling and, and a bunch of reading I do is really drilling into sort of the ego and egolessness and all that, which is a whole nother layer. But I think, I mean, tactically for healthy boundaries, um, it's just a lot about like basic life hygiene, like your notifications, when are you available? When are you offline? Like my team know if I'm offline and they need me, they have to text me. Like I don't have Slack turned on on my phone. Um, my team know, yeah, that if they email me, I might not get back for a couple of days. And that's just the expectation I set on email. Um, my weekends, I don't expect people to work weekends unless there's some sort of technical crisis usually, but like that's very rare. And that's really clear in the way that we communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've so I told you- everyone to take a week off for holidays. Like things like that <laughs> for ever what holidays every single one or what do you mean like oh no just like because of covid i noticed at, in july i was like no one's taken vacation this year and it's still super right. important so i was like everyone has to take a week off between now and september hmm. yeah stuff like that very cool like, they're like okay not sure where we'll go but we'll um, yeah i'm like sit at home and do nothing and don't work yeah exactly they're like yay the vacation i always wanted thanks yeah thanks Ishana. really appreciate that <laughs> if you could change anything about your entrepreneurial journey what would you have done differently Oh God, (laughs) that's funny. Um, I think, um, I think there's been, for me personally, there's been, um, times when I could have listened to my instincts more. So I've, um, sort of thought myself into a loop as opposed to just being like, I know this to be true and therefore I will do it or not do it. Um, So I think that's tied to that confidence thing that I mentioned earlier. So I think confidence is super important and confidence is definitely something that I'm continuing to work on. Um, How do you work on that? How do you work on building? Oh, there you go. Executive coach. Mm. See, no one wants to talk about them having a coach, you know, it's like, what coach? I don't have a coach. And everybody has one, you know, <laughs> it's like a founder's secret weapon that they don't want to admit they have. <laughs> I actually, I recommended to another founder the other day that, that I was like, do you have a coach? I found having a coach really useful. And they were like, no, but maybe I will. 
I think that it's absolutely necessary a lot of the times um, to have a coach. <laughs> yeah. Have someone else in your corner who's not, you know, invested in your company, advising for your company, working for you, you know, like right. just in it. It's good to have someone outside who. Right. A hundred percent. Also, whose job it is to make you better and. Right making us better might not be what we even know is the thing that we need. I think that's what I found at times is like, um, like she takes us down a path where I'm like, I'm not quite sure how we ended up there, but then afterwards I'm like, Oh, that was really helpful and impacts like it unlocks all of these other things. Right. Hmm. And then you can take that back to your company and then you're a better leader. You're more confident. You're able to drive things forward. It's, um, you know, very much of your, a professional, not your, but in general, like a professional journey very much happens on a personal level as well. Um, well, that's one of the things that, yeah, I found really interesting about being, a, I think, I think it's a unique to the CEO or found, particularly founder role and I'd be curious if you found this, but it's like your company will only accelerate as much as you can expand your own personal growth. So like, I didn't come into this knowing how to do anything really. Right. <laughs> and, I, and so <laughs> I'm having to learn every step of the way. And so like, if I don't grow fast, my company can't grow fast because right. like we're sort of pushing the edge together. Um, and it's not something I was really aware of before I was in this role was this like personal evolution is, is super necessary. So how have you grown personally and professionally as a leader? I would love to ask that question to my early team, actually. Um, I think one of the points I sort of alluded to already, which was like trusting my intuition and my like my knowledge more so just I think at the start I was probably more trepidatious and a bit more like oh I have to I'm gonna ask all these people for advice or like you know source all this information um before doing a thing whereas now I think I'm much more comfortable being like all right well there's no right answer because there rarely is a right answer in a startup and this is what I think is the best answer. So I'm just going to go for it. Um, I think another thing that I really struggled with, and this might be true for other minority entrepreneurs, um, particularly, um, well, you know, people who are not white as well as people who are women or non, not male, I should say, um, was just around like, I didn't, I mean, I still don't see many pictures of success that look anything like me. And so feeling like I had to conform to the sort of prevailing paradigm of success um, in the way I approach my business and run my company. And so I think particularly working with my coach has given me the confidence, maybe as a confidence thing to go, I can create my own version of what success looks like. And it doesn't have to fit into the sort of white Silicon Valley bro box. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, that's supposed to be the coolest, one of the coolest things about starting your own company, you know, is that you create your own path, you create your own metrics of success, you create your own team, you just constantly are right. creating your own vision for a lot of different things. Um, but, you know, especially when you're fundraising, it's like, right. you're really kind of, uh, when you're fundraising from investors who are used to that box, it's really tough to have that creativity. 100%. I'm glad to hear that it's not just me that's struggled with that. <laughs> oh, I think a lot of founders struggle with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of founders don't want to take investor capital. <laughs> well, I honestly, you know? like the only reason that I decided to was because I knew I wanted to create a platform that reached millions of people and has right. the potential to turn into a billion dollar business. Cause I really do know that that's what we're building at Coral. But if that wasn't my ambition, I definitely wouldn't have. And it's right. been very much a like soul searching of, do I want to go down this path? And then saying, yes, I'm at this stage in my career. I think I can like swing for the fences, mm -hmm. maybe hit a home run. Um, yeah. And therefore I will make the deal with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will, I will go down this path. The flip side of that is it is truly amazing to be given a large amount of capital and being mm -hmm. able to use that to create your dream. And it's really such a privilege. Like I feel so yeah. lucky that I'm in this position. It's really like such a blessing. And I'm sure you had quite an advantage though, being in the venture capital world prior to starting your company, you already saw so many pitches, you saw the do's and don'ts already. Like you, you had pretty good insight, I'm sure, into how to raise money. Yeah, I think I probably did. I don't, you know, I don't know. Cause I don't know what it's like to raise capital from venture capitalists in the U S without that knowledge. So I'm not sure how much of a, an advantage it gave me in my process, but I'm sure it helped. I think it was probably pretty huge. I feel like a yeah. lot of people that aren't from the world of startups, like even in general, you know, maybe they were yeah. in corporate for a long time or, you know, they've just had no sense of what anybody else's pitch looks like. You know, there's certain things as an investor, like you look for the 10 or 11 page pitch deck that hits on very specific things. You know, a lot of people don't know what those things are unless they're doing their research as hopefully they are, you know, yeah. that says here's like the format for what a startup pitch looks like. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think what was probably more helpful, um, and which I maybe, you know, again, for those aspiring venture backed founders out there the thing that was incredibly powerful that um that is harder to sort of emulate is the network so um if you're thinking of raising venture money um it is really worthwhile trying to cultivate access as fucked up as that kind of is but it is like people knowing people and getting intros to people so thinking about that a bit of time before you need it and putting in the time to like ask people for their time basically is, yeah. um, can, it can pay huge dividends. Right. Yep. Do you have any, um, advice 
final advice, whether it's about, you know, trying to find those investors and approach them or just in general for entrepreneurs out there? Do you have any final words of wisdom? Um, I think the path of entrepreneurship is filled with a lot of fear. And some of that fear is um, helpful. It's like self-preserving. And some of that fear is self-defeating. It's, it's actually prevents you from doing what you really want to do. And so um, there's probably a whole bunch of you who have ideas that you are excited about and you're scared to take the leap. Um, and I would really encourage you to sit with that fear and try and discern what is the self-preserving fear, i.e. I need to get my finances straight and I need to make sure that I've got health insurance and all these things before I quit my job. Um, or even I should test this idea in a bunch of ways before I quit my job (laughs) and, um, self-limiting fear, which is like, I'm not good enough or, you know, how am I going to survive or, um, what's my career trajectory going to look like if I do this and it fails, um, really work through that because, um, that's what will help you gain the conviction and courage to do what you hopefully really do want to do. That's excellent advice. I like that. That was well said. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for sharing your awesome story. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.